0: Hello and welcome to the Rapid Sequence Intubation Overview for the Center New York EMS Region. I'm your host, Chris Fulligar. This course is much less a class in rapid sequence intubation, per se, than it is an experience in cutting-edge airway management of the critically ill patient. If your focus is just RSI, you're missing the point. And no, it's not because paramedics are bad intubators or because we need to teach to the least common denominator. We will teach you, or update you regarding, RSI, although I can probably do just that in about four minutes. Expert airway management, on the other hand, is so much more than that. The goal is optimal resuscitation of the patient, not getting a cuff tube in the trachea. If the latter is your mindset, it is an outdated attitude and we need to change that. We have learned so much about airway management over the years, and this type of old thinking will be to the detriment of your patient. I recently came across a saying that resonated with me. There's a huge difference between 20 years of experience and repeating the same experience 20 years in a row. Experience is a powerful process when coupled with an open mind and critical evaluation. You need to have the right tools to do the job. This is what the Central New York EMS RSI program gives you. But even the best tools are useless or dangerous in the hands of an unskilled craftsman. Hone your skills, know your craft, and be an expert resuscitationist. Use tools, don't be one. The lexical and conceptual semantics of rapid sequence intubation have gone through many iterations as it evolved over the years. On the screen, in no particular order, are a few airway management terms, each of which are associated with very different concepts. We will explore some of these concepts in more detail later, although the underlying premise of this evolution is that airway management is much more than sedating, paralyzing, and intubating. First and foremost, know and avoid the killers of pre- and peri-intubation. Hypoxia. Even a single transient episode of hypoxia during intubation can be lethal. Oxygenation and denitrogenation are the concepts that we will explore to minimize this risk. Hypotension is another risk factor for subsequent mortality. Acidosis is the silent killer. How do we avoid these? Practice. Don't stop when you've memorized the protocols. Being an excellent resuscitationist isn't defined in a page of the collaborative. Use all your skills and experience together in a way that is greater than the sum of its parts. Passive oxygenation using 15 liters per minute via nasal cannula, denitrogenation, resuscitate your patient before they arrest, monitor end tidal CO2 closely, rehearse contingency scenarios, Stop focusing on, quote unquote, getting the tube, and start managing the patient as a whole. Don't miss any steps, which leads me to my next topic, sequence. Remarkably, the different terms for emergent airway management differ in every word except sequence. The word sequence is defined as a particular order in which related events, movements, or things follow each other. In our case, each event in the sequence is critical. If you miss one, the process is delayed and your patient risks becoming hypoxic, hypotensive, or acidotic, which means they could die. If you were to fly in a commercial airliner and the pilot, regardless of his or her past experience, decides to wing it without a checklist, he or she would not be flying for long, at least not under part 121. They can't make a mistake. If they miss a step, people die. They use checklists each and every time. The reason for this is that 99.99% is not good enough. There are roughly 30,000 commercial flights in the U.S. each day. That means that there would be about 1,100 commercial airliner crashes every year, or three every day in the United States alone, if 99.99% of the flights do not crash. We can't make a mistake either. One misstep delays the process and puts patients at risk for hypotension, hypoxia, and acidosis. In short, if we mess a step, people could die, quite literally. Taking a lesson from flight operations, we have come up with a checklist for RSI. This is a last-minute reminder to make sure that all your ducks are in a row. In a critical situation, you have enough to worry about. If you are a good resuscitationist, you are focusing on the treatment of the patient as a whole. You don't need to be using up your cognitive bandwidth on the little details of the procedure. As trite as it may be, the idiom, don't lose the forest for the trees, is utterly applicable in this case. If you go through your checklist without hesitation and use closed-loop communication with your partner, it looks and sounds very impressive. More importantly, it has been shown to reduce errors, omissions, and unnecessary delays. The more critical the situation, the more you need the checklist. Don't fall victim to complacency and overconfidence. A favorite quote of mine from a past president of the International Association of Firefighters is ego eats brains. The longer I practice medicine, the more this seems to hold true. As I said before, if you're just focusing on getting the patient intubated, you're missing the point. This is the difference between a mediocre technician and a great resuscitationist. Look at the big picture. When it is indicated, RSI is a valuable asset. You need to know and be able to perform the skill well at any time, every time. But RSI has its drawbacks. It takes time, delays definitive care, And consumes limited field resources. Medicine is about risks and benefits. Consider them carefully. Hone all your airway management skills, and don't use RSI as a crutch. Do you have the skills to manage this patient without RSI? Is it worth diverting your attention and limited resources away from other important interventions in your sick patient just to get a tube? Remember, it's not about your skill as an intubator. It's about where you want to focus your expertise and spend your resources. The better I get at critical care patient management, the less I do RSI in the field. I find that I actually intubate less now, both in the field and in the hospital, than I did five or 10 years ago. We have better tools than we did back in the day. CPAP, King Airways, I-gels, and an even better understanding of the art of BLS airway management are the things that affect your decision. The forest is more beautiful than it has ever been before. You see what I did there? Forest, trees, sorry. I spoke a lot about resources. They are precious and very limited in our austere field environment. How do you make your decision? Unfortunately, there's no easy answer. There are many things that come into play. For example, if I were 10 minutes from the hospital and bagging my patient well, I'd almost always not RSI the patient. There are more important things for me to be doing and the A for airway is being managed so I can go past that. In the hospital, the intubators may not be better than you, but there are more resources so that multiple things can be going on at the same time. We rarely have that luxury in the field. Air medical may be another consideration. If you are in the middle of nowhere and you are going to put a critical patient in a space that restricts access to an even greater degree than in an ambulance, and you anticipate a probable decline of your patient in the air, RSI may be indicated. Besides, there is often a ground crew to assist the air crew, and things may run more efficiently if you can divide your tasks amongst the available providers. Because there are no easy answers and every case has its unique nuances, we must continually learn from each other. Each case needs to be reviewed and discussed. What was your thought process? Why did you perform RSI or choose not to? Were there other variables that you might not have considered? This is healthy professional dialogue and this is how we learn. Your medical director should be intimately involved in these roundtable discussions. If you ever decide that RSI in the field is indicated for your patient, be ready. Know everything that you are going to do before you need to do it. The forest is beautiful, but there are hidden dangers. Look down the line and anticipate problems before they happen. See that train coming down the tracks before it hits you. Use the checklist, be ready to handle complications, employ contingency plans seamlessly, and prepare for your post intubation care. It's no good if you perform a flawless RSI when it's indicated, and then the patient wakes up and pulls the tube, arrests, or is overventilated by zealous bagging. You know what can happen, so be ready. Intimately know the RSI and the post-intubation protocols. Review them regularly. Rehearse your skills. Don't expect to perform well if you haven't thought about airway management or practiced it in three months. That's just common sense. Apologies to those who have seen this video before or loathe MM. But I can hardly say it better than our friends down under do in three and a half minutes. If you had one shot, or one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted, one moment that you it? Oh, there goes gravity, oh, there goes gravity, he choke, he's so mad, but he won't give up baddies, he know, he won't have it, he knows, his whole backs of these ropes, it don't matter, he's dope, he knows that, but he's pro he's so stagnant, he knows when he goes like, to his go mobile home, the response, the I was painting his wings spontaneously. There's no obvious crack through and recent breathing here, but no crackable. We're going to need to deal with an RSI and then we need to, to help it stand on. If there's no view, we'll come out. Reoxygenate with bag valve mask. I'll have another look. Um, plan after that. Okay. okay, so patient position optimised. Check. Yeah, we'll do that. Yep. Um, O2 sufficient, we've got two bottles. Yep, check, yep. check, both running. Okay. Uh, Pre oxygenation. Uh, in progress. Check. Okay, check's complete. Check's complete. Okay, next rising. be in. Thank you. This sucks. Yeah, Sats and are 100, so collar open in line, circulation yeah, okay, jaw floppy, yep, your thank you, yep, just hold it there please, okay, it. okay, bougie's going in, I've got 100% view of the cords, bougie's gone through the cords, cord. i got the bougie. okay, I've got the tube, yeah. okay <laughs> Uh, We've but... yeah. okay, a there as Okay, I've got waveform there. It's good, equal entry. Right, let's take some post-intubation drugs. Between medical team. Uh, we'll be ready in 10 minutes for an intubated stretcher winch. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's how it goes down for real. Once you've made your risk-benefit decision and feel that your limited resources are best spent on the RSI procedure, break out the checklist. Remember the hard criteria for standing order RSI in the protocol, GCS less than or equal to eight and patient weighs at least 30 kilograms or 66 pounds in the setting of a favorable risk-benefit decision. Note that these restrictions do not apply to air medical. Children are not to be intubated at all unless you are unable to effectively ventilate them with a bag valve mask and basic airway adjuncts. We'll discuss the reasonings for this later in the day. While you are getting things together, maximize your patient's oxygen reserves by quote unquote filling the tank with oxygen and displacing as much nitrogen as possible before you start. Begin with high-flow oxygen via a non-rebreather if the patient is ventilating adequately on his or her own, or a bag valve mask with high-flow oxygen with an oxygen reservoir if they are not. For passive oxygenation while you're performing the laryngoscopy, use a second oxygen tank to provide 15 liters per minute via nasal cannula And maintain this until the patient is successfully intubated. Now to go from good to great. This goes beyond RSI and airway management. Remember, it's about being an excellent resuscitationist. Be ready for anything. Be polished. It's in the details. Get your suction ready, turn it on, and place the yankower under the patient's right shoulder so you can grab it with your right hand without looking while holding the laryngoscope with your left. Go through your equipment, monitor checks, and make sure your IV or IO is working properly. Connect the normal saline and have it ready to go if you need to give a bolus. The blood pressure cuff should be on the opposite arm as the IV, so that if the cuff cycles, it does not prevent you from pushing meds. Get your intubation equipment ready and prepare your BLS adjuncts. Backup device, surgical airway equipment, OG tube equipment, and tube holder. Have the N title CO2 connector within easy reach. Drop your intubation medications and your first round of post intubation medications. Brief your team on the procedure, contingency plan, and how they can assist, like external laryngeal manipulation, equipment management, etc. Everything should run seamlessly, accurately, and efficiently. It's practiced to the point that everything becomes second nature and reflexive. That's how you start the transition from good to great. Prepare your induction agent. You may choose etomidate or ketamine. Previously, we listed a single dose for adults. Unfortunately, specifying an absolute dose could leave some patients under-medicated. To address this while keeping it as simple as possible and to minimize dosing errors, we have employed a weight-based dosing but allowed for rounding to the nearest specified increment. Note that Atomidate is dosed by total body weight, so this is the patient's actual body weight or your estimation thereof. Ketamine, on the other hand, is dosed by ideal body weight This is determined by the patient's height and gender. It's the weight that they ideally should weigh, not what they actually weigh. For example, a six-foot male should weigh about 80 kilograms. A five-foot, two-inch female should weigh about 50 kilograms. These are their respective ideal body weights, regardless of their body habitus. Again, no need to be exact, but keep this in mind when you're preparing the medications. The dose in milligrams per kilogram for these medications are on the checklist for your reference. Remember, any medication in the protocols that can be given IV may also be administered IO, even though some medications, like calcium chloride, really should go through a proximal well-flowing IV unless you are sure that the IO is in place and that the benefits outweigh the risks. For paralysis, use succinylcholine. Only use rocuronium if succinylcholine is contraindicated. These contraindications include a known history of malignant hyperthermia or known or suspected hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia should be considered in patients with severe crush injuries, rhabdomyolysis, dialysis patients, severe burns over 24 hours old pre-existing spinal cord injuries and neuromuscular disorders such as ALS, which is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease, and multiple sclerosis. The list is in the protocol document itself for your reference. The dose and milligrams per kilogram for these medications are also on the checklist for your reference. The mainstay of post-intubation care is pain management. We used to think of sedation first, but intubation is a painful procedure. Fentanyl is our mainstay. That is not to say that you should not sedate your patient. You may use ketamine or midazolam for this purpose. Vecuronium for continued paralysis is standing water only for air medical, and that is primarily for safety considerations. If your patient is moving and agitated, that is likely a sign of inadequate pain management and sedation, and you should maximize control of those issues. The doses you are permitted to use on standing order are likely more than what you would need for most patients. So use what you need and you can titrate to effect as required. If you absolutely need to give paralysis for some reason, this is a medical control order for ground providers and does not negate the need for ongoing pain management and sedation. Do everything you can to maximize your probability of success on the first intubation attempt. Avoid the deadly pitfalls of hypoxia, hypotension, and acidosis. The patient should be resuscitated to the extent possible before intubation occurs. Position the patient the way you want. It is easy to go too deep when attempting laryngoscopy. To avoid this common error, employ progressive laryngoscopy. As you're inserting the laryngoscope, progressively identify the airway structures as the blade goes deeper. Identify the teeth, the tongue, the tonsils, and the epiglottis. You can use external laryngeal manipulation by having another provider grasp the thyroid cartilage. While performing laryngoscopy with your left hand, use your right hand to position the larynx to maximize your view. When you get a good view, have your partner hold that position. A similar concept is head manipulation. Have your partner hold the back of the patient's head and then with your free hand guide your partner's hand into the optimum elevation to align the airway structures for the best view. Once you have your blade in the optimal place use the bougie. Use a bougie first time every time. The bougie is a wonderful tool but requires a little practice. Get used to using the bougie on easy intubations so that you will be facile when faced with a more difficult airway. Tube confirmation needs to include continuous waveform capnography. Do not forget to print a strip of the waveform after placement of the tube and after each time the patient is moved if your device does not record the capnogram as part of the code summary. Place an OG tube and decompress the stomach. You can use a Tumi syringe and or intermittent suction. Don't be shy about modifying your environment. Do whatever it takes to maximize your chance of first-pass success without hypoxia or hypotension. Here, the patient is positioned on an elevated stretcher, the monitor is in view, the bougie is ready, there is an external laryngeal manipulation assistant and there is even a sunshade. Even the smallest detail can have a tremendous effect. Get your alternative airway device ready, such as a King Airway or iGel device. A common misconception is that the provider must try to intubate the patient before going to an alternative airway. This is not true. If you judge that the patient would be better served by an alternative device, you may place that straight away without first attempting laryngoscopy. Continuous waveform capnography must be used with these devices, just like capnography is required for use with an endotracheal tube. The alternative airway should have a gastric port to allow for the passage of an OG tube. Don't forget to decompress the stomach by placing the OG tube and aspirating the stomach contents. Always be ready for kyco. This is the one and only indication for a surgical cricothyroidotomy. If you are able to effectively ventilate and oxygenate the patient in any other way, including BLS, cricothyroidotomy is not indicated. In other words, the patient risks imminent death if the procedure is not immediately performed. Make sure your team is ready for this contingency. The preparations for a missed airway are included in the RSI checklist and should be ready to go before the RSI begins. I don't think there is a more straightforward, intuitive, or cost-effective method of transcricoid ventilation than the scalpel-finger-bougie surgical cricothyroidotomy technique. You should literally be able to perform this procedure with your eyes closed. It will likely be bloody and you cannot rely on visual landmarks. Make sure that your bougie and 6O endotracheal tube are clean and dry to facilitate easy passage and prevent sticking. Don't force the bougie and create a false passage through the subcutaneous tissue. Secure the tube manually until you are relieved or another airway is placed in the hospital. There aren't great ways to secure a tube in a bloody field, and if you had to get to this point to begin with, you do not want to lose this airway under any circumstances. Tube confirmation is the same as for orotracheal intubation. The job is not over when the tube is in place. Remember, it's about resuscitating your patient, not placing the device. Support your patient's hemodynamics. Make certain that you are not over- or under-ventilating your patient. End-tidal CO2 should be between 35 and 45 millimeters of mercury. Make sure that everything is secured and follow the post-intubation protocol. Elevate the head of the bed. Employ standing order, analgesia, and sedation as we discussed. Continuously monitor placement of the tube and keep an eye on the capnograph and listen for breath sounds and epigastric sounds each time you move the patient. Be prepared for tube displacement. That means keeping the mask for the BVM readily available, keeping your backup airway devices close at hand, and knowing the DOPE mnemonic cold, which is displacement, obstruction, pneumothorax, which is tension pneumothorax, and equipment failure. Go through this mnemonic whenever there is a problem and have a low threshold for pulling the tube and placing a backup device if there is any concern for displacement then cannot immediately be rectified. Well, that's the overview. After a short break, we'll review the specific components in more detail and then apply all of this in scenarios. This is not the type of skill that you can learn once and not think about again until you recredential. Once the class is over, the learning does not end. Keep this fresh in your mind. Think about it. Grab a mannequin whenever you can and go through the steps. Review the checklist regularly. Ask questions. Do regular mental rehearsing on your way to work. Keep the procedure in perspective of the overall care of your patient. It requires a lot of resources and might not be worth doing in a particular situation. You can't afford not to get this right.